I so I'm in my training in internal medicine um, here in Baltimore, Maryland, and I've had the opportunity to work with patients both in the clinic and in the hospital that um, that unfortunately find a lot of medicines prohibitively expensive, and then they find it more difficult to kind of balance. The the cost of those medicines with things like food and uh, with rent. Um, so in particular, I've had multiple patients who have found medicines like insulin to be prohibitively expensive. Um, and insulin has been around for nearly a century. Um, there's also uh, the case where many patients struggle to afford their inhalers or various antibiotics that again have been around for, um, for a long time. Ravi Gupta is a resident in internal medicine at John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And as he said, he's seen the influence of sudden price hikes on his patients. Between 2010 and 2015, more than 300 drugs in the US have seen sudden increases of more than 100%. In a new research paper, Ravi and his co-authors have suggested and tested the feasibility of a new possible answer for those price hikes. A small tweak that would hopefully protect patients from the possibility that they would no longer be able to afford their essential medicine. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. And in this conversation, Ravi and I cover the idea of how to increase competition to make these markets more functional, and what the possibility of that changes given the political landscape in the US. I, mean, I think a lot of people uh, listening to this will have probably seen um, Martin Screlly, who's the uh, the CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals, and um, he's become a sort of prior in the press because of the the price hike that he did for for one drug that was um, used to treat toxoplasmosis. So I just wonder if you could take us through the example and kind of you know what happened there and and how typical of that is the kind of the way in which these price hikes price hikes happen. I think that's a great example, and he's definitely the uh, the poster boy of uh, bad practices among pharmaceutical companies. Um, and I think so. We we can go through that, and then kind of also contextualize that in the sense of the just overall price increases of generic drugs. So what he was able to do, Martin Shirelli, is take advantage of the fact that Daraprim, um, which has been around for several decades, I believe it was first approved in 1950, or in the 1950s, he was able to take advantage of the fact that there was only one manufacturer of this drug. And his company, and he was more of a kind of a pharmaceutical entrepreneur kind of from the, uh, uh, from the hedge fund kind of uh, world, where he was able to buy the rights to this drug. And because there were no other competitors, for this uh, for this drug, he was able to increase the price to what he thought the market could bear, and so for patients who had toxoplasmosis who needed this antibiotic, um, they had, there was no other option for them, and so he was essentially operating in a monopoly, and uh, I think so. And he's not the only one um, who's been able to do this. There have been a number of other companies who've been uh, the source of public scrutiny. For example, Valiant. Uh, around the same time, a few years ago, was adopting the same strategy of purchasing uh, the rights to various drugs. And because they were in monopolies or duopolies, they were able to increase the price dramatically. And one thing that we have to remember is that 
these drugs, like I said, have been around for several decades, and they're no longer protected by patents or market exclusivity, um, as opposed to some of these newer drugs that have come out, such as oncologic drugs or drugs that treat hepatitis C, which are protected by patents, and they, as a function of that, are, are um, in monopolies. Um, so, to, so what Martin Shirelli did is not an isolated example. And he was able to take advantage of the fact that there isn't much generic competition for very specific drugs. And I think it's important to know that while he was able to use a particularly egregious strategy, the price overall of, of uh, generic drugs that have been around for a long time and are off patent, a big chunk of those have seen price increases. And um, while they may not operate in monopolies and they may not have faced a similar circumstances what Martin Shirelli did, um, there overall that chunk of generic drugs has the prices also increased. Hmm. I mean, we've seen that in the UK, where you know, unlike the states, you know, the the individual, the cost to the individual of a drug might not matter, um, but the cost, obviously, to the NHS, the whole system does. And and we've had reports over here of of equal sort of price gouging. Um, on those drugs. I mean, you've mentioned there a couple of examples, but just, you know, how common is this? How many drugs? And um, do you have any sort of numbers to sort of back up how, how big an issue this is? Right. So I, um, there, was, there was a study that came out a few years ago that was done by the, um, uh, the Government Accountability Office here uh, in the U.S. that looked at kind of a basket of drugs um, of off-patent generic drugs, and it compared the number of drugs that had, uh, that had seen dramatic price increases um, in the last several years. And they identified that there, had, there was an increase um, in the number of drugs that had, that had faced extraordinary price increases. There were 45 uh, generic drugs in 2010 that increased by 100% in price uh, to 2011. But between 2014 and 2015, there were 100 drugs that had seen price increases of at least 100%. So between 2010 and 2011, essentially, the number of drugs that had seen such extraordinary price increases had more than doubled uh, by the time uh, that 2014 came. So it, it, it's not just a small isolated to one or two drugs instant. It's, it's kind of pervasive and, and prevalent. Exactly. It's, and it's more common than I think uh, than a lot of people realize. Um, but I, I also don't want to overstate kind of uh, the numbers. Um, but it is a substantial problem. And I see this as uh, a doctor uh, in training day in and day out, just how a lot of commonplace drugs are prohibitively expensive for my patients. Mm -hmm. um, now, You've kind of proposed a solution uh, in this research paper and then gone ahead to, to test um, how practical that would be. Um, and so your solution is, is quite simple. If a drug approved by the FDA has a ge generic equivalent um, that hasn't been approved by the FDA but has been approved by another regulator, for example, the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, which does the job of the FDA uh, in the in the EU, um, then that should be allowed to be sold in the US, fast tracked into into service to try and plug the gap or or, or increase competition and and bring down the prices of these drugs. 
like you said, it's a fairly straightforward solution in theory. Um, and I would like to say that it's not a silver bullet. It's not a solution that will automatically fix the, the problem of dramatic price increases and shortages. But I think it could be um, part of the solution. And A step in the right direction. Exactly. And in combination with a number of other solutions, what it could do is essentially bolster the level of competition for generic drugs here in the U.S., and we propose that the FDA would adopt this process of reciprocal approval, wherein drugs that manufacturers that had received approval from comparable regulatory bodies like the EMA, like Health Canada, like um, the regulatory bodies in Israel and Australia, um, when if a manufacturer had received approval in those by those regulatory bodies in those countries in those geographical areas then that should be a sufficient level of evidence and the FDA should have the authority to allow those those manufacturers to also receive approval in the U.S. based on that body of evidence so that the manufacturer doesn't necessarily have to uh, seek separate approval by the FDA. And with the time delays and costs and everything associated with that. Exactly. Now, obviously, that would... You know, for that to work, as you said, it's it's not a magic bullet, but um, for that to work, it would need to substantially increase the the competition um, within the the U.S. for these drugs that are currently not available there, um, and that's what you've done in your research is to look at at how feasible that would be. So, could you take us through um, sort of briefly what you did, and and then what you found? How many drugs would this would this potentially allow into the system? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, briefly, what we did was we identified a cohort of drugs that had been approved since the FDA started uh, characterizing approvals, or at least uh, recording approvals of drugs back in 1939. And we looked at drugs that had fewer than four generic versions. And we used that threshold based on prior literature that suggests you need at least four competitors for a uh, for a drug price to not face dramatic increases. Um, and so we isolated a cohort of drugs that had fewer than four competitors and also were no longer protected by patents or market exclusivity so that we had a selection of drugs that were uh, eligible for uh, generic competition. And then it was uh, fairly straightforward. We look, looked at, we identified uh, seven other regulatory bodies that were that had stringent criteria for approval comparable to the FDA and for each of those drugs we then for each of those regulatory bodies looked at how many manufacturers had been approved have had obtained approval and we accounted for uh, manufacturers that were the same as ones that had obtained approval in the FDA and only counted that we didn't count that as an additional manufacturer and oftentimes it might have been the case that the manufacturer had uh, kind of acquired another manufacturer or had bought drug licenses from a different manufacturer. And so we, we account for all overlaps and essentially, uh, essentially looked at how many additional unique manufacturers there would be from these seven regulatory bodies outside of the FDA. And what we found was that at least that there were more than 60% of of the drugs in our sample would had a unique manufacturer, at least one unique manufacturer from any of these seven regulatory bodies outside the FDA. And if we accounted for the manufacturers that had obtained approval from the FDA and also from 
one of these, each of these seven regulatory bodies, there were 40% of the drugs that were in our sample um, would, ha- would meet this threshold of at least four generic versions. And um, hopefully that would lead to kind of uh, a minimization of drug price increases and also shortages. So there we've got a system that is potentially very simple and already there is the, the framework of, of legislation in place that would allow it to happen. Um, this research shows that actually it would potentially work to um, significantly significantly increase the competition for you know these, these drugs where there is a, a single generic um, producer and, and, and head off some of these, these huge price hikes that we've, we've talked about. Um, why isn't it happening? Why, what, what's preventing this from, from kind of becoming policy? Right. I, so there have been a number of attempts in the last few years, and I think increasingly so, to look at importation of drugs as a solution to price increases. Um, a number of senators here in the U.S. have proposed legislation. A number of laws actually have been passed by individual states, but were subsequently overturned um, because it was argued that it's a federal issue and not a state issue. And I think one concern that has been brought up repeatedly by both policymakers and even past FDA commissioners and other folks is that importing drugs would compromise the safety of uh, individual drugs and also uh, increase the risk that patients face. And I think one of the concerns there is that it would increase the number of counterfeit drugs. It would be hard to track uh, the importation of these drugs. But I think that in this... Uh, in this reciprocal approval process, the FDA's role would be paramount where they could they could make sure that the drugs that are being imported are coming from other stringent regulatory bodies. Hmm. They would only include those drugs that have previously already been sold in the U.S. and have established safety and efficacy profiles. Um, and with that, with those two kind of criteria, um, I think that this issue of safety could be um, could be addressed. The other thing to note is that a big chunk of drugs that are sold in the U.S. are already imported from other countries um, because they're manufactured in other countries. And the FDA, uh, it, the FDA works with other regulatory bodies and other. Um, other officials in different countries to conduct inspections and make sure that the manufacturing uh, processes of these drugs uh, meet their requirements. And so it wouldn't necessarily be a completely new uh, process. Historically, there's been a lot of, um, should we say, pushback against anything that could uh, lower the cost of drugs in in the U.S., Um, but, you know, Donald Trump came in with that as being kind of almost an explicit part of his of his platform. So I wondered, you know, do you feel like the the, the landscape there is changing and that, that something um, like this will, will is more likely to happen now or, or there'll be increased pressure on the FDA to, to start doing this? I think I think so. I think there is a higher and more robust level of discussion around drug prices. And polls show that uh, 
patients and people around the U.S. are increasingly frustrated with price increases of drugs and just how prohibitive uh, purchasing of drugs has become. Uh, and I think some policymakers have uh, have started to talk more about this issue. And of course, Trump campaigned on this two years ago. Um, but I would argue not much has changed since he's been in office. Um, the FDA in particular has actually been quite progressive in the last year or so, trying to adopt various strategies to bolster the level of competition. And I think that the FDA now would would certainly take and I take this proposal of importing drugs more seriously. Um, I think they're very much committed to um, working on the affordability of drugs, particularly those that are off patent. Um, even though it's not necessarily what uh, the FDA is charged to do, I think they are trying to adopt strategies that can increase the level of competition. Great, that's interesting. Um, I mean, that kind of sort of answers everything that I wanted to talk about. Were, were there any specific points that you wanted to make? Any Anything else that we haven't kind of managed to discuss? No, I think we covered quite a few uh, interesting points. I, I would just like to, I guess, close by saying that um, that, it, that we, we wrote this paper to just kind of um, provide some empirical evidence for the for for the strategy of potentially importing drugs. And I think that in concert with a number of other solutions that we could increase the level of competition um, and ultimately make drugs more uh, affordable for patients. And I think that's really what the end goal here is, is for our patients to be able to afford their drugs um, and improve their health. You've been listening to Ravi Gupta talk about drug price hikes in the US. The article that he and his co-authors have written, Affordability and Availability of Off-Patent Drugs in the United States, The Case for Importing from Abroad, an Observational Study, is online now on bmj.com. That's all for this podcast. But for more discussions of research, analysis and education, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. We're in most places now. You can also find our full back catalogue on bmj.com slash podcasts. Hundreds of episodes, all available for free. So get all your CPD points in now. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.